Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the fourth edition of Digital Detectives, brought to you by our terrific sponsor, Applied Discovery, an international leader in electronic discovery. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, we'll be talking about ethics and e-discovery with one of our best friends from the bench with whom we've had the pleasure of speaking frequently, Judge Herbert Dixon, who sits on the Superior Court of the District of Columbia. Welcome, Judge Dixon. Uh, thank you, John and Sharon. I am really happy to be here. Before we begin talking about ethics and e-discovery, let's start by telling folks a little bit about your background, Judge. As I mentioned, Judge Dixon serves on the Superior Court of the District of Columbia. He's a former chair of the National Conference of State Trial Judges of the ABA and has served three years as member of the planning board of ABA Tech Show. Currently, Judge Dixon is the technology columnist for the Judges Journal Magazine and co-chair of its editorial board. We could tell you a lot more about our very accomplished guest, but let's use our time to delve into our topic. It's a great pleasure to have you with us, Judge Dixon. I know you share our passion for ethics and e-discovery, which so often do not seem to go very well together. Recently, it seems that we've been averaging the same lousy statistic each year, with 20 to 25 percent of all reported electronic evidence opinions involving sanctions. Why do you think that is? Sharon, there are a lot of opinions about why this has occurred, and I'll give you my opinion, which may or may not coincide with some others. Uh, ESI provides many, many opportunities to prove that relevant documents existed uh, and also that they were not produced. And ESI provides many opportunities to prove that a document was altered that, that was produced. We're talking about taking a look at document metadata, system metadata, registry files, which brings me to my point. I believe that there's much more of a confidence by judges now when the issue of spoilation uh, has been proven, uh, much more of a confidence that a document that exists was not produced, that a document was in fact uh, altered, and it is much easier based on the record to find spoliation due to neglect, gross negligence, or, or misconduct. And with the existence of that proof, the court only needs to determine which prejudices, if any, uh, did the party incur who did not receive the discovery. And I think that that has led to a substantial increase in, in sanctions. Judge Dixon, which ethical rules in your judgment are, are most violated in e-discovery? Because we, we've certainly seen quite a few of them in, in our time in the courtroom. I think the one that comes to mind first, because it coincides with so many of the other uh, ethical rules, is uh Rule 1.1 of the uh, of the ABA Rules of uh, Professional Conduct, and that is the rule on competence. Uh, the next rule that that I think applies equally is one of communication. That is communication with the client, uh, communication with the opposing party. Uh, after that, I think it's probably 3.4 uh, fairness. Now, in the uh, in the paper world. Uh, in the paper world, it, it was much more difficult, if, if you will, to, to demonstrate some of the issues that come up with but fairness. But intuitively, I, I think that with ESI, 
the issue of fairness, either overwhelming an opponent, opponent with, with requests, overwhelming an opponent with uh, electronic documents, uh, and, and the like. Those are the three rules that I think that I see are violated most frequently. I think candor to the court would be my number four. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to get personal about this. Uh, yeah, well, we've certainly seen a lot of prevarication going on or a lot of disingenuous kind of speech uh, to to the judges uh, uh, in the courtrooms we've seen. I'm not so sure that that's not the competence thing that Judge Dixon was talking about, though. You know, <laughs> I don't know that well, they really don't know sometimes. <laughs> well, that's true, and, and, and I agree with that. But, but some of the bad behavior obviously involves things like um, hiding the ball, uh, doing a data dump, spoliation, uh, intentionally delaying litigation, uh, and yes, outright prevarication to the court, uh, messing up the case due to incompetence, and sometimes uh, not not abiding by the aspirational goal of proportionality, partially, I think, because greed is a factor in not wanting to winnow down evidence because attorney review costs are, are thereby, in some cases, doubled or trebled. Um, I'd like to hear your comments on any of those factors, Judge, and what you think. Uh, they are all recognized issues. Uh, for instance, data dumps. Now, the problem can arise whether you are the, should I say, the dumper or the dumpy. Uh, <laughs> is, is, is one better than the other? <laughs> <laughs> but the problem, uh, and this, this demonstrates generally a, a lack of cooperation uh, between parties. It also demonstrates an unfairness to opposing counsel uh, whenever, and this lack of awareness uh, by the parties uh, or the attorney requesting discovery. There have been uh, instances that I, I've seen that the data dump is generated by uh, an incompetent request uh, for a particular ESI, and it results in a huge amount uh, of data being provided to the attorney. Sometimes the data is provided uh, deliberately by the party producing the ESI because they believe that it will be much more difficult for the the, the receiving party to go through and make any real use of the of the information, uh, and lastly, with respect to data dumps, uh, it really can disadvantage the party who's supplying the electronic data because there are issues of privilege. You could be with with without having reviewed the documents, you could be turning over a vast amount of documents uh, and the data that would normally be protected by privilege. So uh, I agree. Uh, data dumps is is one of the issues. Hiding the ball. Uh, that that's that that's that's a very good one. That comes up more often than not when individuals are not producing documents that they should produce that are available. It comes up in some cases with respect to spoliation. Uh, hiding the ball is a carryover from uh, the the paper days, in 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 my opinion. Uh, but the the abilities of forensic uh, experts uh, to review a hard drive, to look for evidence of a document that one party claims does not exist, uh, and to be able to demonstrate it or to look for evidence that a document was, was altered, that the hiding the ball is a very dangerous step. You, you take that at your peril if, if any um, individuals uh, are caught at it. A spoliation. Normally, we expect lawyers, uh, our parties, to try to be uh, cooperative and know how to save the fight uh, for instances that are really crucial uh, with respect to the case. Uh, 
But with respect to spoliation, somehow that brings out individuals who do not want to turn over evidence that would hurt their case or want to physically change the evidence or electronically change the evidence that, that, that would hurt their case. Uh, if a lawyer or a party is tainted by a proven accusation or very suspicious accusation of spoliation, they risk their reputations forever because judges will remember those individuals. There's just absolutely no, no question about it. I think one of the other things that you mentioned was messing up a, a case due to uh, incompetence. Uh, there's one case that I'd sort of like to re refer your your listeners to, uh, and I know it's one of the cases that you talk about quite often. That's uh, Bray and Gillespie uh, versus Lexington Insurance Company. Uh, the bottom line is that after years of litigation uh, with the hotel having been requested to provide guest attendance records so they could they could um, collect on their insurance claims with respect to uh, damages that occurred during uh, three hurricanes. Uh, after years of the hotel uh, essentially indicating that they were unable to provide the information with respect to the guest attendance records, after several attorneys, uh, the case ended up being resolved when the new attorneys uh, called the software manufacturer and found out that the information uh, that was needed concerning the hotel guest attendance records uh, could be provided uh, when there had been many claims, uh, many claims by by the hotel that that, that, it, that it couldn't be done. And in, in my mind, it displays the incompetence of the initial attorneys to be able to to provide that that information. Uh, greed as a factor in not winning, winnowing down cases. There are just too many instances on both sides where either there is an overproduction uh, of documents uh, that causes uh, the other side to have to expend a tremendous amount of money, or, and this happens with counsel who are representing uh, cor corporate clients and counsel who tend to be outside counsel, them wanting to go through everything uh, in order to to bill uh, for for a needless review of documents which have been overproduced. So I think greed can be a factor, but it, but it's one of one of many factors. I'm not sure if I completed your list, Sharon. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, let's get some more specifics here. The, the blockbuster case of this year involving attorneys and ethics has been the pension committee case. <laughs> would, would, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a big one, wasn't it? Would you, would you give us your thoughts on that case as it relates to ethics? Uh, sure. Uh, in, in my mind, uh, this case, uh, well, well, first let me just back up just for your listeners. Uh, there were about 13 plaintiffs uh, in the case, uh, all of whom had monetary sanctions imposed, uh, in the words of uh, Judge, Judge Shindlin, uh because the court found that all 13 of the plaintiffs uh, had conducted discovery, discovery in an ignorant and an indifferent fashion. Uh, I think that, once again, uh, relates to most of the issues that we've been talking about, it relates to competence. Uh, it relates to uh, fairness to opposing parties because of the spoliation. It relates to misconduct. Uh, now, the case 
pension committee uh, scares a lot of folks uh, because uh, there was a finding of gross negligence for failure to uh, issue a, a written litigation hold. Uh, I, I point out to your listeners that you know that's more the law of the Second Circuit uh, than it is some of the other circuits. So in terms of the result, uh, you know, be careful in terms of which circuit that you're practicing. Uh, however, it relates to, that is the case, it relates to, uh, as I said, uh, competence, fairness to opposing parties, misconduct. Are there any other cases from 2010 that you'd call to our attention? I, I have one in particular that I'm thinking of, and since we've discussed that uh, a little bit before, uh, uh, go ahead and give us something on, on Victor Stanley, too. Uh, but, but there might be others that you want to call to our attention as well. Well, yeah, Vic, this year uh, we had three cases that, at least in my opinion, folks were calling blockbuster. Uh, first, there was pension committee with Judge Shenland. Then there, uh, then there was Remkus, uh, and now there is uh, Victor Stanley too uh, by Judge uh, Magistrate Judge Paul Grimm. Uh, a lot of people were wondering why uh, Judge Grimm had been so quiet recently. Uh, but he, he <laughs> well, that's because he was he was saving up for this epistle. He, he certainly made up for it with with this particular uh, decision. The, the one thing that strikes me uh, with the case was the extreme uh, with which he explained the conduct. You know, you quote the single most egregious example of spoliation that I have encountered in any case that I have handled or in any case described in the legion of spoliation cases I have read in nearly 14 years uh, on the bench. That's an extreme comment, and it, 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 it speaks uh, very specifically with respect to the conduct in that case. Uh, failure to implement litigation holes, deletion of ESI, failure to preserve an external hard drive, uh, failure to preserve files and emails, deletions of ESI, after the court entered a preservation order, I mean, and just on and on. Uh, that, that case definitely describes misconduct more than anything else, uh, 8.3 under the uh, rules of uh, professional conduct. Now, there are, other, uh, there are other cases, and what I'm trying to remember right now is if there are 2010 cases uh, or, or, or otherwise. Let me just call off some of them to you. And, and we'll, we'll see. Uh, there is Qualcomm. Uh, it, for those who, for those who heard, uh, a loud wind blowing from the West, uh, in early <laughs> April, it was the attorneys in Qualcomm who were breathing a sigh of relief, uh, that, uh, Judge Major, uh, ruled, uh, that they should not face sanctions for mishandling of the discovery process. Uh, I've seen some commentators suggest that those lawyers had some extremely good defense attorneys because that was not the result that, that they were expecting. Uh, when, when Qualcomm uh, first uh, hit the light several years ago, folks were expecting uh, a final ruling that very severely uh, punished the parties in the case. And that's not what, what occurred there. 
Uh, it certainly yeah. isn't. In fact, I think we were very disappointed in, in just uh, uh, what a weak ending it was to what seemed to be a very strong movement to, to gather control. At, at this point, John, I think we need to head to a break, if you'll take us there. Sure. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Applied Discovery. Applied Discovery, a global leader in complex litigation preparation and management, combines subject matter expertise and innovative e-discovery technology in a complete and proven process. From litigation readiness to collection, analytics, processing, document review, and production services, we manage your entire process with dedicated project managers to ensure quality and workflow efficiency. With our team, including former practicing attorneys and technology experts, Applied Discovery can help you successfully navigate the challenges of complex discovery. Discover Applied Discovery today at AppliedDiscovery.com. Need the latest on e-discovery-related topics? Check out our new e-discovery center right here on the Legal Talk Network. You'll find podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more. Just visit our homepage at LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the eDiscovery Center logo. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on Legal Talk Network. Today we are talking to Judge Herbert Dixon about ethics and eDiscovery. Judge Dixon, do you think we should be t- teaching this particular subject in law school? Absolutely. Uh, eDiscovery and, and ethics. Uh, some of your listeners may be old enough to remember the uh, Watergate break-in. Well, it wasn't until after that that there was the drive to, to make sure that ethics was a component of the law school uh, education uh, and, and also the bars requiring continual legal education on ethics. Now it is even more crucial, and it needs to be taught in the law schools so as to begin the correct teaching and indoctrination of the up-and-coming lawyers. Some lawyers have bad habits, and those we may not not ever be able to correct. But with respect to the up-and-coming lawyers, we need to have courses on e-discovery and e-discovery ethics. I, I, I know that Ralph Losey, who's, who's a commentator uh, with respect to these issues, has actually developed what he calls a course in e-discovery that he's trying to shop to law schools, giving them the opportunity to listen to. He brings in person such as you do with your blog to, to teach various sections of it. Uh, and I have no doubt that there are others out there pushing to be able to teach ethics in law school, but the answer is an unqualified yes, it should be taught in law school. It, I'll, it might make you feel better to hear that we're asked to speak about that quite a bit. And I do think that it has gotten, because of all the sanctions, particular notice, and at least the lawyers groups are beginning to want to understand more about it. So I think that's an, an encouraging sign. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yep. And for the record, I, I just want to say that I read about Watergate. <laughs> John, I, 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 I'm we'll just, talk just later, John. Ju- yeah, just yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so, Judge Dixon, what's, what's the worst unethical behavior in e-discovery that, that you've ever seen? that I've ever seen that has personally occurred before me is rather mild compared with some of the other things, and, and, and that is uh, in, in a case where an individual took uh, a laptop uh, from his former corporate employer, and when the request came for discovery, he used um, hard drive wiping software to wipe the entire hard drive clean. Uh, that was just so obvious uh, 
but it, it, that it was found immediately. But that's really the worst case that I've seen that, that's occurred in front of me. I have not had anything like what Judge Grimm uh, has described in, in Victor Stanley too. Are there any unique issues related to criminal law uh, concerning e-discovery and, and ethics, you know, like the, the Brady obligation and the plain view doctrine as it's related to computer searches? Uh, what would you like to call to our attention there? Oh, you hit the nail on the head with respect to the issues, and, and there are two. Uh, one is to prosecute this Brady obligation. One of the things that seems to be happening in many prosecutors' offices where they are mindful of their Brady obligations, the easy way out is to just use a data dump uh, and turn over vast amounts of electronic material to, to the defendant's counsel with no indication uh, what specifically is in that data dump uh, to which the defendant should pay attention. When those issues are brought to the court, I think the defendants will get a a result, and that is the court will more often than not point out to the prosecutors that they've got to do a little better than that. The other interesting issue in criminal law relating to uh, discovery of electronic information uh, is this. There's the principle in law that if the law enforcement officer is where he or she has a right to be, then if they see evidence of other illegality, uh, they are free to act on it. For instance, executing a search warrant, uh, being in a house, and then observing right there in plain view uh, illegal drugs. Well, that concept now is being argued fiercely with respect to computer hard drives and other electronic data. When the prosecution obtains an order to seize Uh, a hard drive, all of a sudden they have access to more information on many occasions than they have ever had going into an office, going into a home. A person's life story quite often is on that hard drive. And the arguments from the prosecutors is that we, where we have a right to be by law, the search warrant uh, was issued by the judge, so we had a right to view in the hard drive, and the fact that we found evidence of other crimes of which we had no knowledge uh, all occurs because it's in plain view. The Ninth Federal Circuit has taken an interesting approach to this, and it will eventually take the Supreme Court uh, ruling as to whether how this is going to go, uh, and that is suggesting to magistrate judges Uh, that when considering a search warrant for a hard drive or for electronic data, that the magistrate might want to uh, limit the extent to which the prosecutors uh, can search the hard drive. Uh, Another suggestion is that the prosecutors might be required to waive uh, any right to argue plain view with respect to evidence that falls outside of what they were originally searching for. Those two issues, that is the Brady issue and the Plain View Doctrine, uh, are destined for a lot of litigation. I'm fairly certain that with respect to the data dumps, that the courts will react to that in terms of requiring the prosecutors to identify specific information. But with respect to the Plain View Doctrine, there's a split among the federal circuits. There's a difference of opinion in state courts. 
as to which way that one's eventually going to go. It's an issue worth watching. It certainly is, and I, and I agree with you about the Brady obligation. I think the courts will enforce that because uh, forcing the defense to find the needle in the haystack certainly does not seem to spit with, fit within the spirit of, of Brady, and, and I think it's less clear what's going to happen to the Plain View Doctrine. But we sure want to thank you very much for joining us today, Judge Dixon. There are very few speakers we've, we've seen who have kept such close tabs on this issue for so many years, and we really appreciate hearing your very insightful thoughts on this troubled area. Uh, Sharon and Don, it's been my pleasure to join you. Thanks. It was great to have you with us, Judge Dixon. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all editions of this podcast at www.legaltalknetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's Computer Forensics Technology and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.